course study. If you'd open up to Matthew 24. Also, we'll be looking again today at Revelation 6 because Revelation 6 continues to parallel where we are in the Olivet Discourse. So you might want to have those two places marked so you can go back and forth to them. Uh, I have subtitled today's lesson, The Great Tribulation. Now, in our previous two lessons, we've been looking at the Lord's panoramic account of the first half of the tribulation in Matthew 24, verses 4 to 7. And in verse 8, he gave us a title for those first three and a half years, which was the beginning of sorrows or the beginning of labor pains. And we saw how it corresponds with the end times events given to us by the Apostle John in Revelation 6, verses 1 to 8. We discussed how John, in a prophetic vision, saw the glorified resurrected Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, break in succession the first four seals of a very critically important scroll. And we said that scroll represents the title deed to this earth. And each broken seal released one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The word apocalypse is a Greek word which means unveiling. You could also call the book of Revelation the book of unveiling because it unveils the future for us. And those grim horsemen represented, number one, the Antichrist on a white horse, number two, war and bloodshed on a what color horse? Red horse, famine on a black horse, and death with hell following after on a pale, sickly green pale horse. And the Greek word for pale, by the way, is chloros, which is where we get Clorox. Um, interesting, isn't it? And uh, they match perfectly with those four horsemen, match perfectly with the first four labor pain signs given to us by the Lord in the Olivet Discourse, which were false Christs, wars and rumors of wars, death by way of famines, pestilences, beasts of the field. We talked about rats. Did you enjoy talking about rats today in your groups? <laughs> And earthquakes, and there we were, and we had another example of the frequency of earthquakes getting more and more as we get closer to the tribulation. Sweet and chilly. Well, after the Lord had given his men the first two signs that will begin to evidence his soon return, which were the rise of false Christs and the continual hearing of wars and rumors of wars, he had said, if you look at the end of verse 6, he had said, the end is not yet. And then, after he told them of the additional labor pain signs of famines and pestilences and earthquakes, he made the comment in verse 8 that all these are the beginning of sorrows. He didn't say all these are the end of sorrows. He said these are just the beginning of sorrows. So, in essence, he was again saying in verse 8, the end is not yet. Also, if you look at the first word in verse 9, which is where we will start our study this morning, what is the first word in verse 9? Then. And that's a word that demonstrates a division change. He says, the end is not yet, the end is not yet, these are just the beginning of sorrows. And then he says, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and, shall, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. During the first three and a half years of the beginning of sorrows, the Antichrist will have made, you know, at the beginning, what starts the tribulation, the seven-year period, is that he will have made or confirmed a peace treaty, a peace agreement with Israel. You know, he'll be the one who comes along and finally seems like he's, he's made peace in the Middle East. Some kind of covenant it's called in Isaiah that Israel's making a covenant with death. But she'll make, she's eager to have peace, so she'll sign that a peace agreement. And Israel will not be persecuted during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Nor will those who come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ be persecuted in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. At least they won't be persecuted by the Antichrist and his forces. There'll be persecution like there always is. You know, we're always persecuted for righteousness' sake. But they won't be persecuted, you know, violently and uh, with martyrdom, etc., like we will see or they will see in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. But then things will really change. 
And what causes the change? It's right in the middle at the time of the abomination of desolation. Things will change. And the last three and a half years, we'll see the greatest persecution of not only believers, but of Israel and the Jewish people that this world has ever seen. And the Lord gave us the title for that last half of the tribulation, those final three and a half years in verse 21. It's called the Great Tribulation, and that's why this lesson I have entitled The Great Tribulation. We'll be talking about some of the signs of the Great Tribulation that the Lord gave to his disciples. We'll also be talking, we'll be going back and forth. I'll be talking about some of the things in the first part and some of the things in the latter part, but basically the signs he gave his men in this next section, 9 through verse 14, are about the last three and a half years, and he gave them five additional signs to look for. Remember the question they had asked? What shall be the sign of that, thy coming and of the end of the age? And instead of just giving them one sign, he gave them four for the beginning, and he gave them five for the end, and then he gave them one particular sign in the middle, the abomination of desolation. So he gave them a total of ten signs to look for. Well, he actually gives them another one, the sign of the coming of the Son of Man, man we'll see also. So... Anyway, the five he gave them for the second half of the tribulation, and this again, if you want to look at your outline, which is on Roman number page five, little V with two eyes at the beginning of your books, the five signs are the persecution of the saints, the prophets of Satan, the proliferation of sin, the promise of salvation, and the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel will be preach to the entire world, to every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language group. But the church is not going to be the one to accomplish that. The tribulation saints will accomplish that feat and get the gospel to every single person on the and if, if they miss somebody, there's an angel who will circle the globe and gives the everlasting gospel to everyone. So no one will be without excuse by the end of the tribulation. Everyone will have heard the gospel. Let's look now at the first sign, the persecution of the saints, and read with me Matthew 24, verses 9 and 10, where Jesus says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. Now remember, we always have to keep at the forefront of our minds that the Lord is still answering his disciples' question about the signs that will precede his coming in the end of the age. And here he gives them a fifth sign. He's speaking primarily to Israel in the tribulation. Israel, you know, has always been hated by the world because... The current God of this world, the small g, Satan, hates Israel. Have you noticed that? He definitely hates that little land that is not much bigger than, it's I think a little bit smaller, than the state of New Jersey. There's only 13 million Jews in the world today, but he hates them. Why? You would think they're just a drop in the bucket compared to the 7 billion people, but he hates them. Why does he hate them? Well... For one reason, Satan hates Israel. He hates the Jewish people because of Jesus Christ. <laughs> it was through Israel that Jesus came into this world the first time, and it will be for Israel, primarily, that Jesus will come into this world the second time. And Satan hates that because the one who has defeated him and who will sentence him to eternal torment in the lake of fire is who? Jesus Christ. And as Satan's time grows shorter, he is going to work overtime. That's another shadow that we could foreshadowing thing that we can look at today. We we can see evidence of him knowing his time is growing shorter in that he is working overtime even now. Can you imagine what it will be like in the tribulation? Evil men are waxing worse and worse, but we ain't seen anything yet. And I don't want to see it. I don't want to be I want to see it from the balcony. And I will see it from the balcony. <laughs> and I hope all of you will be watching from the balcony. Well, after the church is, speaking of the balcony, after the church is removed in the rapture, Satan is going to begin his ultimate full force attempt to wipe out Israel so that God's plan to save Israel will be destroyed. 
and his covenant, God's covenant promises with Israel will be unfulfilled. See, that's what Satan would like to have happen, that God would not fulfill his promises to Israel because then God would prove not to be God and Satan could usurp him like he's wanted to do all along. Now, his first major attack to annihilate Israel, this is Satan I'm talking about, will be through, and I'm talking now about the tribulation period, his first attack to an, uh, attempt to annihilate Israel will be through the war that is known as the War of Gog and Magog. You can read about it in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. Israel will be attacked by Gog and Magog. Gog is the title of a ruler, and Magog is the title of a nation. And Bible scholars have figured out that it speaks of Russia and the leader of Russia, Gog, Russia, Magog. She will come down from the north with six anti-Semitic, anti-Israeli, anti-Jewish, primarily Muslim allies to attack Israel. And the Bible in Ezekiel tells us that this great army will be massive, Coming down to, they'll come down to the Golan Heights between Syria and Israel. There's mountains known as the Golan Heights, and they'll be stationed there. And this will be, you know, one of the countries with Russia is Iran, which, I mean, the, the scene is ready. All the countries that will come with Russia are all in place today, and they're all anti-Israel. And they'll come down, and they'll, it'll be like David facing Goliath. You know, Israel will look like totally there's no way out of this for her. She will look like she's going to be wiped out. But who is going to intervene in the war against Israel by Gog and Magog? Not America, not the United States of America, but the Lord himself will intervene. He will cause an earthquake to occur, and he will spread a plague among the troops gathered there. You can read about this in, in Ezekiel. Um, he will not only spread a plague that will hit everybody, but he, the earthquake will cause so much dust and spew, have so much confusion going on that people, that soldiers will get confused and they will actually be fighting one another and wiping out one another. And if that wasn't enough to destroy that army, the Lord is also going to send down hailstones and uh, fire and brimstone. Four different ways he's going to intervene. And five-sixths of that army, that huge, massive army, Russia and, and, and uh, Muslims together to annihilate, will be destroyed. Five-sixths of them will be destroyed. And Israel will be so amazed. <laughs> That's a good word. <laughs> she will be so amazed that I believe this is, this is the first way that God will really get her attention. I believe the war of Gog and Magog is going to occur early in the tribulation, perhaps shortly after the rapture of the church. I don't think we're going to see it, but I think shortly after we're out of here, that will be one of the first wars and rumors of wars that will take place. And God is going to use his intervention, his obvious intervention, to turn the Jewish people from the agnosticism and atheism and liberalism that she widely practices today. If you go to Israel today, she'll probably find that out. Um, I can't think of her name. I just, Karen will, is in Israel right now, and she's probably amazed at the materialism and the secularism and the atheism that is all over Israel. You think you'd go to Israel and see a whole lot of really religious people, but they're in the minority, the Orthodox Jews. The ones who are still looking for a Messiah to come are in the minority. And most of them are, they don't even bother with believing in God today. But I think when this happens and they, they will recognize the hand of God, well, I don't have to think about it. Ezekiel says they will recognize the hand of God and corporately they will return to their belief in the God of the Bible, at least the God of the Old Testament scriptures. And that is why there will be so many people again worshiping and offering sacrifices in the temple. They'll at least turn back to God corporately as a nation. 
Now they will not, she will not corporately yet be saved because she will not turn to faith in Jesus Christ as her Messiah and her Savior from sin. But I think the war of Gog and Magog will turn her back at least to believing in God. However, that's in the beginning sometime of the first three and a half years. But in the midst of the tribulation, Satan will begin to use his two puppets, the Antichrist and the false prophet, to turn on the Jews and then begin the worst persecution of them that they have ever seen, which is saying a whole lot after if you've ever read about the Holocaust and the concentration camps and all the horrific things that went on. Satan will also attempt to kill off all Christians, tribulation saints. Now remember, anyone coming to Jesus Christ in the tribulation, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, will be a baby Christian by the time they get persecuted. Because, well, you know, baby Christians can grow really fast, and I, they'll be reading their Bibles, and, and I hope they'll all grow. They, they at least grow strong enough to be willing to be martyred for their faith because there won't be any fence sitting then. You're either for or you're, or you're against, you know. So they'll be wholeheartedly for Christ. But they'll only have three and a half years to get grounded in the Word of God. Think about it. If they get saved right at the beginning, and some of them won't get saved, they might only have two and a half or one and a half or just a few months to grow in the Scripture before all of a sudden all hell breaks out and Satan is, you know, empowering the Antichrist and, and they have to be willing to stand for their faith or be killed. Or, or, I mean, stand for their faith and be killed. Be willing to die for what they believe in. And he'll also, of course, attack Jews. He won't care if they're saved, if they believe in Jesus Christ, just because they're Jewish, he'll be after them. Well, anyway, from the parallel passage over in Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11, and the opening of the fifth seal judgment, in which John sees under the altar in heaven, this is now a scene up in the third heaven, John looks and he sees under the altar the souls of those that were slain during the tribulation. So we know that these are people, Christians, who are killed, martyred for their faith in the tribulation period, which will be in the latter three and a half years. And what were they slain for? The word of God, because they held to this book. They believed in this book, the Bible, the word of God, and also because of their testimony, which they held. They said, no, we will not take the mark of the beast. We would rather die than take the mark of the beast. So they're killed for the word of God and for their testimony. And we know that this is a reference to tribulation saints who are martyred for their faith, both Jew and Gentile during the, during the uh, tribulation. Now, how is it that people will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation? When, when all the church-age Christians, like you and I, are suddenly removed from this earth in the rapture, what is it we're going to leave behind? Absolutely everything. <laughs> you won't be, t I guess we're going to be going naked, right? Remember how the, <laughs> we'll immediately be robed in our robes of righteousness, of course. But everything else is going to get left behind. Now remember that. So leave all your Bibles, you know, out in the open and uh, collect a lot of extra tracts. Write out your personal testimony on paper. Leave it somewhere conspicuous. We don't know when he's coming, but just leave it out somewhere. Because the people left behind, maybe even some of your loved ones, your friends, I hope people will break into my house when I'm gone and find my massive library and, and steal my books and read them and steal the Bibles that I have and read them and all the tracts and all the Christian CDs we have and the commentaries and music, etc., etc. All that stuff will be left behind, right? And when everything is kind of going crazy, we hope, and we know, because we're told in the scripture, many, many people will turn to the word of God and start reading it. Maybe they'll remember their Christian friends and their loved ones who said to them that the rapture was going to happen. And they scoffed at it and they said, you've got to be kidding me. We're, you guys are going to just be beamed out of here like uh, Star, what is it? Star Trek, Star Trek. I used, that's what I thought when the first time I was 22 and a half years old and the first time I ever heard of the rapture of the church. I said, you have got to be kidding me. 
I'd never heard that doctrine in all of my life, and the people were telling me about it with a straight face, and well, they're really far out, but then I started studying the scripture, and it's in there. You know, Enoch was just, he was and then he was not. Elijah was taken up kind of like a translation in a whirlwind and a chariot of fire. It's true. We're just going to be here one minute and gone the next, with the Lord the next, and I cannot wait for that. I have dreams about it. I'm dreaming, and all of a sudden, my whole body just gets sucked up like from a giant vacuum cleaner. Have you ever? It's just the weirdest feeling. (laughs) I have weird dreams. But anyway, um, so we're going to leave behind all this stuff, and the Word of God will be just as alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword then as it is today. You know, the grass might wither, And the flowers might fade during the time of the tribulation when all these earthquakes and things are happening. But what will stand forever? The Word of God will stand forever. The Bible will have as much ability to transform lives during the tribulation as it has today. In fact, when someone picks up the Bible, a Bible, in the the tribulation and begins to read such passages as the Olivet Discourse or the Book of Revelation or Ezekiel about Gog and Magog, they're not going to need a Bible teacher (laughs) to help explain it to them because it's going to be like turning on the 6 o'clock news to them. They're not going to say, I wonder what that symbol means. They're going to say, oh, wow, that just happened. Russia just came down with Iran and Ethiopia and and just tried to attack Israel, and they were wiped out by an earthquake and hailstone. Whoa, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Those people who disappeared were right. And they'll be willing to sell themselves totally out because they'll know that it's true and they only have to hang in there for a few more years. And Jesus, that'll be exciting. Didn't you just say that yesterday? They'll be, I mean, it'll be scary, but at the same time, it'll be so exciting to know it's true. It's happening before our very eyes. And if we can just hang in there, and yet if, we, if we can't hang in there till the end, we'll be immediately with him and we'll return with him in a few more years and everything will be just wonderful. So, apocalyptic scripture to them won't be confusing. It'll be like, it'll be like opening up the newspaper. Perhaps, and another thing I thought about, perhaps like the Apostle Paul when he was still called Saul uh, and he stood by watching Stephen die, And Stephen had, oh my, such a testimony there. He was being stoned to death and his face was glowing like an angel. And he looked up into the heavens and, you know, the sky opened and he was looking at the Lord. And then he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Paul was, uh, Saul was under such conviction watching that. Don't you know that that was what he was thinking about partly while he was on his road to Damascus? And he too came under conviction conviction because Jesus actually spoke to him. (laughs) Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? I mean, that was a very obvious, that was very obvious, wasn't it, when Jesus spoke to Saul, but he he became the Apostle Paul. I think that many of those persecuting the tribulation saints will themselves be saved by watching the ones who are willing to die for their faith in Jesus Christ. And we aren't told in Matthew, but over in Mark 13, in the parallel account to today's study, it does say to the tribulation saints, don't worry about what you're going to say when they take you before the councils and before in the synagogues to persecute you. Don't worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will give you the words and he will give them mighty words. And those words will be used to bring many of their persecutors to salvation one thing we know is that in the in the tribulation there will be the greatest revival that this world has ever seen multitudes of people will be saved Um, many perhaps will be pricked in their consciences by remembering the witness and the godliness of the christians that they did know before they disappeared Uh, Perhaps they will realize, I don't know how they couldn't help but realize, how terribly wicked the situation on earth has become under the reign of the Antichrist. And uh, they'll see the difference, you know, when the church was around. And, uh, And don't forget, too, that many will be saved 
by the, test, the witness of the two mighty witnesses who will be preaching and showing great and mighty signs and wonders to Israel. And also the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will be preaching to the Gentiles of the world. Whatever the catalyst might be to, pro to, to prove to be in the tribulation for people to be saved, whatever they might be, the bottom line is that many, many people will come to know Christ and will enter into the eternal kingdom um, during the tribulation. Even during the, the midst of the worst part of the tribulation itself, when God is bringing down all kinds of judgment, you know, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, one judgment after another, his primary purpose in all of this is to what? To bring people to their knees in faith so one day they will be in not only his millennial kingdom but go on into the eternal kingdom. And the good news is if you look at Revelation 7, I don't know where I have you right now, but if you go to Revelation 7, look at verse 9. It tells us that those martyred for their faith during this time will be a, I'll give you one minute to get there, Revelation 7, 9. I want you to see it with your own eyes. A great multitude, how great? So great that no man could number it. And they will be from all nations, kindreds, peoples, and tongues. We know that these are tribulation saints because they're standing before the throne, before the Lamb, and they're clothed with white robes with palms in their hands. There will be so many people saved that you won't even be able to count them. And that's talking about those who are martyred for their faith. Add to that uncountable number the 144,000 sealed Jews. And then add to that number those who are saved but don't get martyred and actually make it to the end of the tribulation and go in their physical bodies into the millennial kingdom. So it's going to be, that's, that's the good news about the tribulation, isn't it? That many, many, many people will be saved. It's interesting to realize that in Mark's account, I don't know if you want to go there, you can go there, Mark 13 in the parallel account of the Olivet Discourse, the first half of the tribulation is marked by the Lord's warning command, which we also see in Matthew, when he said, take heed that no man deceive you. Remember when he said that? Take heed that no man deceive you. While in Mark, we don't see this in Matthew, but over in Mark, the second half of the tribulation is distinguished by the Lord's warning command, take heed to yourselves. That's in Mark 13, 9. So before the first half of the tribulation, Jesus says, Take heed that no man deceive you. Marking the second half of the tribulation, he says, Take heed unto yourselves. Now, why do you think there is that distinction? Well, um, during the, the tribulation's first three and a half years, false Christ's Many of them, false messiahs, will attempt to deceive people, dissuade people into believing absolutely anything and everything. And we saw in our study of false Christ that people will just about believe anything, won't they? <laughs> Unbelievable what they'll believe. But uh, there'll be many false Christs trying to, to deceive people. So, you know, to believe anything except the truth and the word of God and the true, the true Christ. And so, therefore, Jesus says to all the people in the tribulation, particularly Israel, take heed that you be not deceived by all these false Christs and all their, their false teachings. Put your faith in, in the truth, in me, instead. Um, and now the reason he says at the beginning of the great tribulation, take heed unto yourselves, is because then they will need to take heed unto themselves because they will be faced with the greatest persecution that, that this world has ever seen. In Mark's gospel account, we find also the Lord's prediction that the tribulation saints will be delivered to councils. You heard me say that a minute ago. We don't read about that in Matthew, but Mark tells us that they'll be delivered to councils and uh, beaten in the synagogues. This is talking about councils, probably Gentiles and synagogues, the Jews. The Christians, I mean the Gentiles and the Jews who are believers will be persecuted. 
Even worse than that, however, I believe, is the persecution of the tribulation saints that will come, about, come upon them through their own relatives, their own loved ones. And again, this is in Mark. I don't think it was in Matthew. Mark 13, 12 tells us that a brother will betray his own brother to death if he finds that his brother has converted to Christianity. Um, it says that a father will turn in his believing son to the authorities. And children, uh, little children, will even rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. That's just incredible. To me, that would be the worst persecution of all. You know, I could, it'd be rough to face the councils if I was Jewish to be beaten in the synagogues. Because the Jewish people themselves, probably the rabbis, will even be beating and persecuting their, the Jewish people who convert to Christianity. They won't like that. But then they'll also be being persecuted and beaten by the Antichrist and, and his forces. So they'll have persecution from not only the Gentiles, but the, the Jews themselves, their own people. But, but the worst persecution of all would be one of your loved ones to turn you in? Your little son, your little daughter, can you imagine that? Your own mother? But you see, this just shows us the power of the Antichrist. He will be empowered by Satan himself. Now, we've had men in this world in the past who have been demonically empowered. But other than Judas Iscariot, I don't know anyone who was particularly empowered by Satan himself. The Antichrist will be the worst of the worst, worse than Stalin, worse than Hitler, you name it, Nero, and he will have such a way with the minds and hearts of, of people, unsaved people, children, teenagers, adults, that he will be able to persuade them that they are doing the right thing when they hand over even their closest relatives to the authorities to be dealt with for their faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps the Antichrist will convince people that their Christian friends, and this is just speculation, but perhaps he will persuade them that their fr uh, Christian friends and relatives are um, the indispensable casualties of a binding and blinding old-fashioned religion that for centuries has managed to inhibit society from seeking its full potential. I mean, isn't... Isn't that exactly what the world is really trying to propagate today regarding Christians? We're the ones uh, holding back this world from evolving to, yeah, to all that it can be. The new world, new world order proponents, the progressive liberal I ideologues, and they're out there, they're very prevalent. They teach that Christians, with their narrow-minded doctrine of salvation, only through one person, Jesus Christ. That, isn't that narrow-minded? These liberals teach that we are, and this is a quote from a book called Conscious Evolution, Personal and Planetary Transformation, that we are, quote-unquote, the cancerous tissue which impedes the evolutionary process, end of quote. Have, have you ever thought of yourself as being cancerous tissue? We're the cancer of this world, ladies. Naughty, naughty, naughty. Actually, we're the salt and light of this world. What? See, when, they're, when we're gone, they're going to miss us. Some of them. There's a growing trend within contemporary liberalism that, believe, that uh, believes that those who do not agree with their ecumenical and economical world order agenda that we should be silenced, that conservative television programs and conservative radio pro programs should be silenced. There's a big movement to try to do that today. When true believers are mysteriously removed from this earth by Christ in the rapture, many people left behind will be persuaded by the evil world leadership that we have been removed for the good of this world, it's good to cut out cancerous tissue. <laughs> After all, it was those Bible-thumping Christians, those people that call themselves born again, 
who held back the progressive evolution of humanity and limited man's freedom to pursue his own pleasures and his own full potential. Spiritists. Now, in the tribulation, there are going to be, there's going to be a lot of occultism going on. Obviously, the Satan ruling the Antichrist and the false prophet. A lot of spiritism, a lot of occultism, witchcraft, you name it. A lot of that's going to be going on. And spiritists are going to say that we have been put, you and I, the cancerous tissue, <laughs> we have been removed and taken into a spiritual realm where we can be re-educated and rehabilitated until we have our opinions and our attitudes altered to agree with the cosmic oneness of everybody else. And then and only then will we be allowed to return to Mother Earth. So when tens of and thousands and tens of thousands and millions of Christians, I don't know what the number will be, when we suddenly vanish from Earth in the rapture, the world is, you can count on it, the world is going to be provided with an immediate answer to our, as to our disappearance. They're already thinking of what they'll say. Because Satan knows we are going to disappear. He knows the rapture is going to happen. And he's already got his answers out there for people. Uh, some might say that we've been taken off in alien spaceships. You know, you've heard that. And probably some people will believe that's what happened. But, um, and, and the aliens took us naked. <laughs> and I don't know how they'll explain all the empty tombs and everything, but it'll be interesting. But the rising Antichrist who will be considered the cosmic Christ. May, he may explain to the startled world that, yes, indeed, their Christian friends and loved ones and acquaintances were taken to a spirit world to be reprogrammed to a higher level of consciousness. And once we are retrained to think properly, we will be allowed to return to Earth via reincarnation. I mean, we might be allowed to come back initially as a tadpole or something. And <laughs> but... You know, if we get reincarnated enough, we can, we can be a person again and become part of the collective transformation of the global new order, order and the universal church, which will be what he's hoping it will be to last forever, would be the worship of Satan, the Antichrist. In whatever ways the Antichrist may manipulate men's thinking, and he will during the tribulation, even if it is through death threats to those who secretly harbor a Christian or a Jew, um, he will do everything in his power to find and to persecute and to kill true believers and Jews. Regardless of the, if the Jews believe or not in Jesus, he'll still want to persecute them. The only ones then who will be safe from harm will be those 144,000 Jews. And the reason they're they're um, going to make it is because they're sealed and shielded by God himself. You can read about that in Revelation 7, verses 3 to 8. Even the two mighty witnesses who testify of Christ to Israel through both their message and their miraculous signs, they will, and that'll be during the first three and a half years, the two mighty witnesses. The 144,000 will go the whole seven years. But the mighty witnesses will be preaching to Israel in the first three and a half years. But even they will be martyred for their faith. They'll be killed by the beast. Revelation 11, verse 7. And the whole world will rejoice when they see the two mighty witnesses lying dead on a street in Jerusalem. And the whole world will see it via satellite. And they'll even have a rejoice the two mighty witnesses are dead celebration. They'll make it a big party. I'm not making that up. It's in the scripture. I always laugh about, you know, can you imagine going to this Hallmark store and buying a card to send to your friends? Happy witnesses are dead day. <laughs> but it says they'll all be re rejoicing that these two pests, <laughs> you know, we don't know who they are, but they could be, perhaps they speculate, Elijah could be one of them. Moses, maybe the other one. And these guys are powerful. And they, you know, a lot of people get saved through them. So the world will be so happy to see them dead. And um, all the cameras will be focused on these guys. They won't even give them the decency of, of burying them. And then after three and a half days, what will happen to the world's shock? Suddenly, they will both stand on their feet. And before the whole world, they will ascend into heaven. 
into the clouds of heaven. Now, when Jesus ascended, only those who believed in him saw him. But when the two mighty witnesses ascend, it says the whole world will see them. And uh, within the hour of that happening, there will be another tremendous earthquake, which will destroy one-tenth of Jerusalem. It says 7,000 people will die. And the remnant of the city will be so frightened that they will give glory to the God of heaven. Revelation eleven thirteen. Now, I think that's the second major factor in turning Israel to corporately believing again in the God of the Old Testament. You know, the war of Gog and Magog, they'll turn from their atheism and their liberalism, and then when they see these two mighty witnesses ascend, get, you know, resurrect from the dead and ascend to heaven, they'll turn to glorify the God of heaven. Unfortunately, however, that will be a fear-motivated acknowledgement of God. Yes, they will again believe in God, but they're not yet going to be confessing their own sin of having rejected God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That won't corporately happen until when? The end of the tribulation, when Jesus Christ himself returns and they look upon him and they go, Oh, no. (laughs) It was the one we pierced, Jesus Christ. And then corporately, Israel, all Israel will be saved. What's left of her? In Matthew 24, 9, the Lord reminds the future tribulation saints that the persecution and hatred against them is really hatred and persecution against him, the one they serve and represent. He says, you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Remember that when you suffer persecution. And we all do suffer persecution. Yea, I hope you do, because it says, yea, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It may not be physical persecution, but if you're any kind of salt and any kind of light, in your circle of influence, you're suffering some kind of persecution from other people. But remember, it's not you they're persecuting. You, uh, persecuting. It's who? Christ in you they're persecuting. Because Satan cannot directly attack Christ, he will atta- attack Christ's people, Christians and Jews, Christ's brethren. And this is what is symbolically described in Revelation 12, I know I've got you going back and forth, but you can just listen. In Revelation 12, where it says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon, who is the dragon? Satan. When the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman. Who's the woman? Israel which brought forth the man-child. Israel is the one who brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times, that's two times, and a half a time, that's three and a half years, from the face of the the serpent. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What that is saying is woe to the world when Satan is cast from heaven. You know, right now, today, still, he has access. He goes between this world and heaven, the third heaven, because he is the accuser of the brethren, isn't he? So he's always, you know, we we learned this in the book of Job. He still has freedom to go into the third heaven and accuse all of us. But I believe it's at the middle of the tribulation period when he is cast out of his access to the third heaven and is confined just to this planet, Earth. And, of course, he'll still have, he's the prince of the power of the air, so he'll still have his demons in the, in the um, second heaven, not the third heaven, but around this planet. And, but he'll be confined down here. That's bad news for the Earth. <laughs> At least when he's gone, maybe there's a little relief, you know. <laughs> but, uh, and then who will? He knows his time is really short now because he's been cast out, so you know he's only got three and a half years to go, and he'll really be angry. And who will he take it out on, it says? The woman Israel, the one who brought forth Jesus. And we are told that that's when the woman is going to be given two wings of an eagle so that she might escape into the wilderness, into her place. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what that means. 
I always have liked to hope that the eagle, the two wings of the eagle, symbolized United States of America, because what is our symbol, our national bird? The eagle. And I always hope, and I continue to hope, I don't know if that'll be true, but that we might send over some planes and help many of the Jewish people escape into the wilderness. That may not happen. Others speculate that it could be Israel herself. Jewish people who read the Bible and know that this is coming, that he's going to break the peace treaty, the bomb, you know, he's going to abominate the temple, and so they will have some of their own aircraft ready to take the many Jewish people away to safety. And I say that because you know what the Israeli airline is called? El Al. Do you know what that means in Hebrew? The Eagle. El Al Airlines means the Eagle. So, I mean, we don't know. This is speculation. But anyway, those who are willing to flee and, again, who listen to Jesus Christ when he says, get out of there as fast as you can get, they will be taken to a place of safety somewhere, perhaps Petra in Jordan. I don't know. But then he'll turn, it says, he'll turn and he'll really, you know, take out his wrath on the remnant, those who are left in a place where he can attack them. The massive martyrdom of the tribulation saints agrees exactly with what John saw when the resurrected Jesus opened that fifth seal. It corresponds, you know, when he opens the fifth seal, John saw the souls of the martyr tribulation saints under the altar of heaven. And uh, there they are, and they're saying, Oh, Lord, how long, you know, before you avenge our blood? And he says, Just for a little season, hang on. You know, there's more, more that are going to be um, martyred for their faith. And, you know, when the time is full, then vengeance is mine. And then j later, I've already talked about the fact that he saw a great multitude that no one could number. And what are they doing? They're dressed in white which means there must be some kind of a temporary body before they get their resurrected, glorified bodies. That's what theologians speculate. How can they wear a robe if it's just their soul? How do people who die and are immediately in the presence of the Lord today, how are they dressed in white robes? Because they won't get their bodies, their glorified bodies, until the rapture. So theologians say there must be some kind of a temporary body until we get our glorified bodies. I'm just throwing that out. But these are, you know, they don't have their, the tribulation saints won't have their glorified bodies until the end of the tribulation, and then they have basically their rapture experience where their bodies come out of the graves and join their souls. But they're standing there clothed in white, and they're waving palm branches. The white of their clothing speaks of their virtue because they've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, so they have received his righteousness. They're white. And the palm branches represent victory. Now, it would look like, the, like Satan had overcome them, right? Because they were martyred. But no, no, no. He didn't have the victory over them. They had the victory because they're going to be the ones who will live forever in the presence of the Lamb and God. And so they're waving palm branches. And those who come to believe in Christ during the worst time this world will ever see and uh, suffer the horrible persecution and even martyrdom under the godless reign of the Antichrist will be richly rewarded for their sacrifices. Do you know that it is the greatest eternal honor of all to give the ultimate sacrifice for he who gave his ultimate sacrifice for us? The greatest ones in heaven... Um, as far as their shining, and we're all going to shine, but some are going to shine brighter than others. But the ones who will shine the most and who will receive the crown of uh, martyrdom are those who gave their life for Jesus Christ, for their faith. So, you know, all things do work together for good. Yes, they might suffer, and they might suffer terrible things. I don't know what the Antichrist might do to people. I know what Nero did, and it was horrific, you know, putting people in animal skins and then feeding them to the lions, setting people on fire and setting them around the, the uh, Colosseum as torchlights so that the people in the audience could watch the gladiators fight while their people were burning as living lamp lights. Awful to think about. But, um, and I don't know what the Antichrist will do, but I'm sure it'll be awful to people. But ultimately, you know, they'll suffer for a little while, but then they'll immediately be in the presence of the Lamb. And the greatest honor of all will be to take off their martyr's crown and cast it at the feet of the one who gave his all for them and who made heaven possible. So all things will work together for good. They will be the one. They're, 
the overcomers. You and I are ultimately the overcomers. We're not cancerous tissue. <laughs> All right. Now, if it took me that long to do the first sign, we are in big, terrible trouble. <sighs> Let's look at the prophets of Satan, verse 20, uh, chapter 24, verse 11. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Okay, you know, in addition, I'm going to do this really fast because I'm out of time. In addition to many numerous false Christs, what else is there going to be? Many false prophets who will also try to lead people astray with all of their false doctrines. The end times will be full of overt wickedness and sin and false religions. Right up until the end, Satan is going to use his, his, his best costume. His best guise of all, which, what is his best costume? costume? He dresses as an angel of light, and he will continue to use his best tool, which is the medium of religion. In Revelation 13, John tells us about a particular false prophets. Just like there will be many false Christs, but ultimately one antichrist, there will be many false prophets, but ultimately one false prophet who will be the antitype of the Holy Spirit. Because instead of pointing to Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit does, the false prophet will point to the Antichrist. Now, the false prophet will probably be Jewish because it tells us he comes, he's a beast that comes up out of the land, and land in Scripture usually speaks of Israel. The, the Antichrist will be Gentile, which is weird. You know, if he's going to be the false Christ, don't you think he should be Jewish? But remember all those false Christs we looked at in history past? Many of them weren't even Jewish. And very few of them had ever been in the land of Israel. So it shouldn't surprise us that a false prophet, maybe some big rabbi in Israel, well-known rabbi, will point to the Antichrist, a Gentile, over the revived Roman Empire and say he is the Christ and they'll fall for it and believe him. And so he will, the false prophet, will propagate a new religion the worship of the Antichrist. He will probably be instrumental, the false prophet, will probably be the one who is instrumental in the destruction of the apostate church, the harlot church, discussed in Revelation 17. You know, when you and I are raptured out of here, the following Sunday, uh, many churches in Lee County, Moore County, and all around the United States and the world Many churches will keep on meeting and be filled with people. Probably the, the next Sunday will probably pa be packed with people because they'll be coming to church to hear about what happened to all those nuts that called themselves born again. <laughs> the churches will be filled with tares. People who call themselves Christian but aren't because they've never had a personal saving moment where they trusted Christ, you know, moved the head knowledge down to the heart and really, truly became born again. And that's the church, the apostate church, that's going to go into the tribulation. And she's called rightly a harlot, a whore, in Revelation 17, because she will be so open-minded you know, I don't, we, they don't believe in the virgin birth and the deity of Christ anyway, so they'll, she'll, they'll be so open-minded that they'll just willingly fornicate with all of the false religions of the world. You know, well, who's to say that Jesus is the only way? Maybe Buddha's another right way. Maybe the Hindus have it right. Maybe the Muslims have it. We'll just join in one great big happy family, and that'll be the ecumenical church, the one world church of the last three and a half, the first three and a half years of the tribulation. But that church will be destroyed in the middle of the tribulation. And the false prophet will probably be the one to destroy her. And he will set up his new religion in her place, which will be the worship of the, the beast, the worship of the Antichrist. That's when he sets up his image in the, in the holy place and all the world has to bow to the beast, take the mark of the beast, or you can't buy and sell, which means you can't last very long, or, or also you'll be, you'll be killed. All right, let's look at a proliferation of sin in verse 12. And because of iniquity shall 
And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. This is the third sign he gives of the second half of the tribulation. Another identifying characteristic of the great tribulation will be the vast proliferation of sin, which will literally abound everywhere. Without the restraining power of the Holy Spirit at work, men will wholeheartedly engage in every kind of conceivable sin. And that doesn't take a great stretch of our imaginations, does it? Because basically he's doing that today. The forces of anarchy are already active in our world today, but Still, no generation has seen anything compared to what will take place in the latter days under the rule of the lawless one, the Satan-empowered Antichrist. Rather than trying to hide their sins, people will be flaunting their sins. Well, again, that doesn't take a lot of imagination. (laughs) And uh, they'll even be bragging about them. Such overt evil and love of pleasure will draw away many people, even professing believers. Now, yes, there's going to be a lot of things happening in those first three and a half years. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. There's going to be rats. There's going to be uh, pestilences and uh, wars going on. And people, just to cope, will be engaging in immoral sex, all kinds of taking drugs and alcohol. I mean, it'll just be just to get through every day. So much will be going on. And that that little false church there, well, that big false church, where people never really made a commitment to Christ to begin with, they'll see all the fun the rest of the world is having, and they'll want to be part of it. You know, why even bother with going to church anymore? And so they'll be... They'll be apostatizing. They'll be falling away. Uh, It says, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. The the love of righteousness that they thought they might have had will fade away, and even the lukewarm will become totally cold. It says in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 4, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. I think about today when I read this. (laughs) Lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. You know, that's what amazes me today is because I believe the, the closest bond relationship is really between a mother and her baby, a mother and her child. Maybe it's a husband and wife, but look at the divorce rate. But a mother and her child, that just, just amazes me how many mothers today, not only so many that abort their children, but when they do have children, they don't even love them. They don't care about them. They, don't, they just kill them and all kinds of awful things. Anyway, could go on with that one. But without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, which means without self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. That describes what people will be like in the tribulation. Actually, describes what people are like today. Men will be engulfed in a tidal wave of absolute corruption, and tragically, they're going to take glory in it. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. You know, the the well-known Russian author Dostoevsky, probably didn't pronounce it right, but you know who I'm talking about. He uh, was living in communism in Russia. But he wrote this. He said, where God is no longer respected, everything is allowed. Isn't that what they saw happen in Russia? Isn't that what we see happening here in the United States ever since we took prayer out of schools? And everything has been going downhill ever since. You know, Russia, the Russian people are just soaked in vodka. I forgot the statistic, but the statistic is amazing for how many Russians are total alcoholics. They just drink their way, their way, their life away. Biblical ethics have severely diminished since the 1960s. I'm old enough to remember the 60s, and I was just a little girl, but I remember not having to lock our house 
not having to worry about locking my car in the driveway, and I lived on a highway. Um, and I now I live way back in the woods, and I lock my car even in the driveway because we've been. I had our car robbed three times sitting in our driveway back in the woods. But then, you know, remember Leave it to Beaver? How many? How, you remember Father Knows Best? Gene Autry? And <laughs> all the wholesomeness of society back then? Um, things have diminished terribly, which has had very serious consequences for our country, our culture, our, our next generation, our uh, politics, our legislation. For example, on one hand, we have abortions abounding. Do you know that's on one hand. On the other hand, there's much talk these days about euthanasia. Oh, do away with her. She's outlived her purposefulness. You know, why, why should we let her be a burden on, on us, the taxpayers? Just do away with the old people. That's getting to be a serious discussion. Kind of scary. Adultery, well, couples who live together before marriage, I mean, that's just so commonplace, people don't even blink an eye. I've sat with people on airplanes and talked to people in waiting rooms and, and, and uh, doctor's offices, and, and they, they'll just say, yeah, I'm living, my boy, living with my boyfriend, or, you know, my, what do they call him, my, my significant other, thank you. And, uh, yeah, but, I mean, that's just common. They're not even embarrassed to tell you about it. And uh, adultery is considered a necessary part of self-realization. Did you know that? A feminist, a theologian, theologian, named Edith Sorge says this. She has published her new Ten Commandments. And in them, she says, among other things, that you may commit adultery. Thou shalt commit adultery. Why? Because you just can't help it. <laughs> okay, lady. <laughs> Maybe you can't help it, but I can help it. I don't want to commit adultery. I have no desire to commit adultery. Do you, do you, well, do you? No, you don't. <laughs> but she says you can't help it because it's part of your self-realization process. You've got to find out who you are. And another, another result of removing God from society is the increase in occultism today. It will get worse in the tribulation, but it's out there today. I went into Books a Million this past week to buy some books, Christian books, but I was amazed at the difference in the size of the Christian section compared to the occult section. And even the Christian section I could take and reduce to a few shelves because much of what is on the Christian section is not Christianity at all. It's other things that call themselves Christian. But the occult section hits you in the minute you walk in the bookstore. All these vampire books that are out now. And uh, witchcraft. Do you know that if you put on Google witchcraft, one million sites will come up just on witchcraft alone? And what is it going to be like in the end times when Satan is ruling? Occultism, witchcraft, vampirism everywhere will abound. The further we depart from God, the further we depart from love. We even find today that natural affection is disintegrating. The hearts of people are already growing colder. And so it will be, you know, it will be everybody totally out for himself in the last, the last days. The great tribulation. All right, the promise of salvation. Um, look at verse 13. He says, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. I'll just tell you very briefly, that is not speaking of having to hold on to your salvation until the end of your life. Remember, he's not speaking to the church. He's speaking to tribulation saints here, isn't he? And when he says the end, those who shall endure to the end, he's not talking about the end of their life. He's talking about the end of that age when he will return. If they endure to the end... They'll be saved. They'll be delivered physically into the millennial kingdom. Right? And then there's another meaning to that, which would mean that those who endure and don't give in and don't wax cold and don't fall away and get absorbed into the false beliefs will prove that they truly were saved. Right? 
It says in 1 John, what is it, 2? 219. This is an important verse for everybody to know because a lot of times we question about people who look like they got saved, but then they disappear and we never see them in the church again. Now, there are people who leave our churches and go to other churches. I'm not talking about them. And I'm not talking about people who backslide for a while, but then they eventually come back. I'm talking about people who seem to get saved, but then fall away totally and you never see them again having anything to do with Christianity. You say, well, what about them? Did they really, were they really saved? Did they endure to the end? No. Why? Because they never really were born again. And that's what 1 John 2.19 tells us. It says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, the body of Christ. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not of us. Remember that verse. Then there is the proclamation of the gospel. That is the fifth sign that he gives in verse 14 where he says, And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And here it is. Then shall the end come. He's talking about the last three and a half years when the gospel of the kingdom is preached to the whole world. And who will accomplish that? Not the church. The tribulation saints will get world, word of the gospel message to the whole world. And then the Lord Jesus Christ will appear at the time of the second coming. Now, there is a slight distinction between the gospel of the kingdom. I want to make sure you read your notes. The gospel of the kingdom. Now, don't misunderstand me. The gospel, the good news, is always because of Jesus Christ and his shed blood, his death on our behalf is sinless shed blood on our behalf. That's how everyone is always saved, no matter what age it is. But there is a slight distinction between the gospel of grace, which you and I preach today, the gospel of the kingdom, which John the Baptist preached and Jesus preached when he first went in his earthly ministry, and which will be preached again in the tribulation, and the everlasting gospel, which will be preached by an angel who circles the whole globe and gives the everlasting gospel. I don't have time to tell you what those distinctions are now because we are out of time, but it is in your notes.